yes, my name is David Ha. I am the worship pastor here at New Philly. Um, and if you didn't know by now, uh, we're going to talk about worship today. I know that's a revolutionary concept, the worship pastor talk, t- talking about worship. Um, but it, I think it's a great reminder for all of us. Um, it's something that we can't ever graduate out of. So we're going to talk about worship. What is worship? Why we do it and how to do it. And there are many things that the Bible teaches us about worship. If you, from the be- very beginning to the very end, it's all about worship, right? Worship is submission. Worship is service. Worship is reverence. Okay, there are so many things in the Bible uh, that it teaches us about worship. And we're just going to scratch the surface today. Um, but let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Colossians is right after Philippians and right before 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And keep your finger there. We're also going to go to Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. But we're going to start in Colossians. Colossians 3. Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word, your will, your way. God, give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know who you are. Open the eyes of our hearts to know the hope the great riches of inheritance, and the immense power that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to glorify your name above every other name. We give you glory and we bless your name. We pray this in your son's mighty and precious name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So what is worship? What is worship? If you're being very specific, worship is the music that is created and the words that an assembly of Christians sing together. Right? It's the 30 to 40 minutes at the beginning of service. Most people think it's just like the filler time that we have to come in late. Right? But specifically, if we're talking about worship, Wayne Grudem describes it like this. He says, worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and with our hearts. It's the reason why Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to, your, to God in your hearts, right? But in a general sense, if we take a step back, in a general sense, worship has to do with the whole Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life should be to glorify God in all that we do, right? It's solely Deo Gloria. Our worship to God in the most general sense is to live a life that is glorifying to God. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 17, whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So these two aspects of worship, the very specific, the 30, 40 minutes that we sing at the beginning of worship, right? And the general sense that we are talking about, whether you're talking about this very specific kind of worship or the general sense of worship, this word worship, they come from the same area. The definition that I like to give worship is a response to the revelation of God. If you didn't catch that, I'll say it one more time. Worship is a response to the revelation of God. 
And notice, there's an order. There's always an order. The revelation comes first, and then there's a response. We have to always come from this place of knowing the word, then singing, okay? Then doing. Revelation, then response. There's actually a theological term for this. I'm sure you've heard it because Pastor JP, Pastor John, he always says this in all of his sermons. He says, there's an indicative and then there's an imperative. The indicative and the imperative. What that means is we need to know before we do. Revelation response. To give you another example, let's go to Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. This part of the Bible is actually the first time where God in detail describes his character. If we look at Exodus 34 verse 6, this is God speaking and he says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God, he's revealing himself, right? And then what does Moses do in the next verse? It says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Revelation and response. Why is it always in this order? Why revelation first? Then response. The reason is simple. It's because humans are dumb. Okay? Humans don't know how to worship God. They just, we just don't know, right? It's not in our innate nature. Because of sin nature entering into the picture, we don't know how it's done. We don't know who God is. We don't know how to worship God without God first telling us how to worship him. So the whole story of Exodus, if you've ever read this book before, it's about God wanting his people to be released from slavery, so that they might worship him. I'm going to summarize the whole book of Exodus for you in the next like 10, 15 minutes, okay? So if you've never read the story of Exodus before, this is like the super Sparks Notes version. You can, you can go read it for yourself or just watch Prince of Egypt after this. Um, but really, it's, it's a good book. It's actually the story that the Israelites always point to. It's like the pivotal story in their history. And it's actually exciting, but also very hilarious. And I'm, I'm going to show you what I mean by that. So God, he calls this man named Moses, and he tells him to go to the Pharaoh to let his people go. See, I already, I already missed like 30 important details, but th these details don't matter, so we're just going to skip them for the sake of the sermon. Exodus 7 says this. It says, God tells Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they might serve me or worship me in the wilderness. So God, he brings the Israelites out of their slavery, out of the worship of the gods of Egypt, out of the, the grip of the Pharaoh, so that he might bring them into his assembly. He wants them to hear his voice, right? He wants them to hear his voice and to worship him. So he delivers them. He, he has the ten plagues come. And he shows them signs and wonders. He even splits the Red Sea so they, they might cross, right? This vast army of Egypt is chasing the Israelites. And he splits the Red Sea so that the Israelites can cross and the Egyptians are swallowed. And then what happens after that? In the next chapter, Exodus 15, if we can look at Exodus 15, 
right after God splits the Red Sea, the Egyptians are swallowed by the Red Sea. The Israelites cross, and what do they do? They, it says, Moses and the people of Israel sing this song to the Lord, saying, I'm going to sing this for you. Ready? I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Yeah, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Oh. When we, when we read stuff like this, it's kind of like, oh, it's just a, I will sing to the Lord. It's, no, it was a song. It was triumphant. It was glorious, right? I don't know why I think of a gospel song, but that's, that's what I imagine. So we, we see this. If we go to verse 20, let's go to verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing and miriam sang to them sing to the lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea right okay let me just point out this is the first hook that's ever written in the bible right okay for the for the older people in the crowd a hook is a chorus of a song that is repeated that's like the catchiest part of the song that most people remember, right? Like, so, like, in What a Beautiful Name, it's like, what a beautiful name. That's the hook, okay? So Moses and Miriam write the first hook of the Bible. But the point is, that's not the point of, of this, but the point is that there's a pattern. Do you guys see this pattern? God reveals himself. He says, I'm this awesome God that can control nature. I'm this awesome God that, can, that has a miraculous hand. And then the people realizing the greatness of God, they respond to him in worship. This is actually a very logical thing, right? When we, whenever a sports team wins a championship, whenever there's any, some, any sort of competition, whenever there's like a victory, what, what do those people do? They jump up, they shout, they scream, they, they do whatever they can because their joy can't be contained. They sing like, anything is possible, right? Even, even, okay, I'm a very competitive guy. Even when I play, like, Catan, like, Settlers of Catan, when I win, I'm like, I automatically go to, we are the champions, my friend. Not you, just me. I am the champion, my friend, right? That's a logical response to victory. So the Lord, he brings these Israelites out of Egypt, out of the imminent danger of the Egyptian army, and they begin to worship him. And God, he loves this. He loves this worship, but he also wants to show them how to worship correctly, rightly. So the next few verses of Exodus, or chapters of Exodus, Moses goes up this mountain called Sinai, and God shows him, this is the way that you should worship me. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus 20. If you read Exodus 20 to 32, it's the Ten Commandments and then all of these requirements of how to worship God. Did you know that the Ten Commandments are about worshiping God? When we look at them at face value, it's like, okay, the four, first four are pretty obvious. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not carve an idol, right? You should uh, keep the name of the Lord holy, right? You should keep the Sabbath holy, right? So these four are obviously, oh, yeah, 
this, these are ways to worship God. But the last six are actually also how to worship God. We'll go into that later. But the Ten Commandments, they're all ways of us to know how to worship God. So on Mount Sinai, Moses, he's up there for a long time. It, uh, theologians say he's up there for 40 days, right? And the Egyptians, they're getting antsy because it takes a whole 12 chapters, right, for God to lay this down and for Moses to receive these tablets that God is writing with his finger. It takes a whole 12 chapters, which is like, what, 20 minutes in QT time, right? It takes a whole 12 chapters. But the sad thing is, humans aren't just dumb. We are easily forgetful. What do the Israelites do in in Moses' absence? They do exactly what God is telling Moses not to do. So they're like, oh gosh, oh Moses is not here. What are we going to do? He's probably dead because there's a huge cloud and lightning and everything. So he's probably dead. So let's just build for ourselves a God. So they tell Aaron, brother of Moses, they say, hey, build us a God so that we can bow down and worship him. So they gather all the gold that they have. And this gold is actually the gold that they plundered from the Egyptians as they were leaving. So it was a huge blessing from God that they turned into an idol. All of the gold that they had, they throw into a fire. And then Moses' brother Aaron, he turns them, turns all the gold into a golden calf. Which they now say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Of course, Moses is on top of the mountain. He's, he's having a literal mountaintop experience with God. And he knows nothing about this. Then God's like, hey, you should go down there, man. They're doing something stupid, right? He comes down and sees the Israelites worshiping this golden calf. He's so angry that he takes the, the two tablets that God, with his own two fingers, wrote. And he smashes them on the ground. He's like, you guys don't deserve this. And he's like, Aaron, what is going on? Okay, so here's the hilarious part. If you go to Exodus 32, verse 24, I thought this was hilarious. When Moses asks Aaron, what is going on? This is Aaron's response. He says, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. On its own accord, out came this calf. You done messed up, eh, eh, Rob? Right? No, but let's get real here. If we were to examine ourselves, isn't this exactly what we do? We take the blessing that God gives us, and we turn it into our idol. We take the good things that God gives us, and we worship them. The blessing that God gave the Israelites, the gold, that was a good thing. The job that God gives you, that's a good thing. The beautiful face, the beautiful body that you have, that's a good thing, right? Sports, video games, all these things. Sex even is a good thing, but we turn around and make it the thing. We make it the ultimate thing. Then it's no longer a good thing. It's an idol. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Actually, it's not a big secret, but it's a... It's a secret. Every sin begins with idolatry. Every sin. Tim Keller puts it this way. The root of every sin is a breaking of the first commandment. And what's the first commandment? 
you shall have no other gods before me. Why do we worship? Why worship? Here's the thing. We cannot not worship. It's impossible for us to not worship. Tim Keller also says this. He says, every person, religious or not, is worshiping something to get their worth. So whether we know it or not, whether we're, we go to church on Sunday, whether, whether we go to a different religion, whether we don't go to church or another religion, the only thing we can distinguish is what or who we worship. Do we worship the Lord or do we worship something else? If every sin is a breaking of the first commandment, that means by nature sin is worshiping something other than God. In fact, almost every sin begins with the worship of self. I want this. I want that. I want to be like God. I want to live for myself. I want to feel good. Here's the scary part. The history of this kind of idolatry, of course it can be traced back to Adam and Eve in the fall, but actually goes further, further back than that. See, the Bible tells us there's actually three kinds of major divisions of angels. There's a messenger angel, which is Gabriel, right? He's the captain of the messenger angels. He appears to the prophet Daniel and to Mary um, and to other people. So there's the messengers, Gabriel. Then there's the warriors. There's Michael and the, the army of, of, of angels that Michael commands. He, he commands these legions of armies to fight on our, our behalf in the spiritual realm. And then finally, there was the worship angel. His name was Lucifer. See, Lucifer was an angel that was constantly, always worshiping the Lord. He was the one that would take the worship that was received for God and he would amplify it and give it back to God. His job was to be like this speaker right here. Like it takes my small little voice and makes it louder, right? That, that was Lucifer's job as an angel. He received the worship and he amplifies it to God. But one day he said, you know what? This worship feels pretty good. I think I'm going to keep it. I think I'm going to keep this worship for myself. And if we look at Ezekiel 28, this is a double prophecy. I'll just read it for you. Uh, double prophecy meaning like it was prophesied not just for the present tense, but also it could have, could have been for something else. So uh, many scholars believe this was not just a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but also against Lucifer. So if you read Ezekiel 28, verse 15 and 16, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. It's talking about Lucifer. The devil, out of his jealousy for the worship that God got, he was cast out of heaven. And because he was cast out, he made it his mission to make us like him. The root of every sin is worship of self. The root of every sin is saying, God, I don't like your way. God, I like my way better. So the question is, will you worship God alone or will you worship yourself? But the thing is, again, true worship, true worship reveals, right? True worship reveals our state, but also reveals a lot about God. If we read Psalm 8, 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? This reveals three things. First, it reveals much about God, right? He he made the heavens with his fingers. He made the moon and the stars. He, he set all of the stars and the, the trillions on trillions upon trillions of stars in their place. He's the creator of the universe. That's the first thing it reveals. It reveals about God. The second thing, it reveals a lot about us. Who is mankind? That you are mindful of them. We're in this huge, vast universe. Mankind is like a speck of dust. Yet God still chooses to be mindful of us. Third, implicitly, it puts everything else into perspective. It says God is bigger than everything, right? God is bigger than the universe. He's bigger than every problem you can face. He's bigger than your nasty boss. He's bigger than that cancer that your family member is facing. He's bigger than this tough situation that you're going through. That's why he's worthy worthy of our worship. Doesn't this put things into perspective? The greatest revelation of God, of course, was Jesus. And the revelation of Jesus reveals a lot about us as well. I'm going to read a quote. It's from this book I'm currently reading. It's called The Heart of Worship Files. It's a compilation by Matt Redman. He's a worship, famous worship leader. I'm sure we've sung many of his songs before. But the book, the quote is from a guy named Nigel Morris. And he says this. Our worship of Jesus is always a response to who he is, or rather, how we perceive him to be. If he is somewhat small in our hearts and minds, our response may remain minimal, mechanical, and even miserly. But as we see him more and more for who he really is, realizing what he has done for us, then pouring out our lives and resources will be a joyful response and our heart's desire. So what he's saying is, if we see Jesus rightly for who he is, if we see our sin rightly for what that is and how great of a pit that we were in before Jesus came, then we would realize how much we should worship him. This actually reminds me of a story that comes from the Bible as well. Luke 7, it's about the woman and the alabaster jar, right? We've, many of you have probably heard this story before. If you've ever heard a sermon on worship, you've probably heard this story before. This woman, she comes and she pours this per, like, expensive bottle of perfume at the feet of Jesus and starts wiping it. And then all these guys are like, why should she, did she waste all of that money pretty much, right? And Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, it boils down to how much I love Jesus. Do I love myself or do I love Jesus? At the end of the day, the Ten Commandments, they just look like a set of rules, right, that, that allow us to worship God. But if you read carefully, it's actually a list of how to love God. And actually, if you read Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. These, this is a summary of the Ten Commandments. Worship. worship is loving God well. So how do we do this? How do we worship? Well, the, the most obvious one is take the example of 
the woman in the alabaster jar. Be extravagant. Don't hold back. Psalm 150 says this, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with the lute and harp, praise him with the tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Be extravagant. In other words, don't hold back. You don't have to care about what anyone thinks about you except for God. The only person you need to care about is God. Just like the women who poured, she didn't care. Like, she came at the feet of Jesus. She was this prostitute that came and wanted to love Jesus well. So she came and gave all that she had at the feet of Jesus. And people thought she was crazy. But she didn't care what people thought. She just loved Jesus. You know, love does crazy things to people. Love makes people shameless. You ever see, like, those crazy videos online about, like, like those flash mobs about proposals? That's what love does to you. Makes you an idiot, <laughs> right? Do you really love Jesus? We sing, like, Jesus, we love you all the time, but do, is it in you? Is that really a love that's in you? You know, some, of the, some people say, like, oh, I don't have the best voice. I don't have musical talents, but that doesn't matter. I've heard some of the loudest, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of the people that sing the loudest in this congregation are not the people with the best voice. But that's what I love about those people is because they're shameless. They don't care what my voice sounds like. I just want to show God the love that he's given me, right? Sing it loud. Be proud. Be extravagant. But not just in worship. Be extravagant in giving. If we recognize that everything is a gift, everything is out of the love that comes from God, we would give extravagantly as well. So be extravagant. Number two, remember the order. Remember, it's always revelation, then response. So what does that mean? Revelation meaning it's an internal change first. Internal. Right? It doesn't happen outward in. So it doesn't mean I lift my hands and all of a sudden I feel good. No, it means worship should begin with an internal change. So an example would be like the person that lifts their hands in worship. I can't, as a worship leader up here, I, I lead worship quite often, right? As a worship leader up here, I can't be the judge of whether that person is truly worshiping God or not. Or whether the person that's standing still in the corner that is experiencing the Lord, this does not mean I'm experiencing the Lord, right? It just means I'm lifting up my hands. External change does not prove internal change, is what I'm trying to say. This means that the internal change happens at the revelation of God. And the external change is a response to that. So remember the order, internal to external. Finally, number three, respond. Respond. You see, worship isn't the only response of internal change. In fact, Jesus tells us many things, and he tells us that another response of internal change is forgiveness. He he says this in Matthew 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Otherwhere... Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 John, it says, you cannot love the Father 
and hate your brother. Right? So forgiveness, that's also a response to the gospel. That's also a response of worship. Evangelism, evangelism and missions, those are also responses to God's revelation. When we engage with Jesus more and more, and he gives us his heart of the Amos 5, it says, oh, in fact, justice and mercy go hand in hand. If we read Amos 5, it says, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God will not accept our worship unless we are living a life for the orphan, unless we're living a life for the widow, unless we're living a life for the lost and the brokenhearted. Basically saying, don't be a hypocrite. You can't love God. It's exactly like forgiveness. You can't love God while you see these people suffering. Let your life speak louder than your words. Let your life speak louder than the songs that we sing on Sunday. Jesus says this. He's going to say this to the righteous at the end. I was hungry and you fed me. Thirsty and you gave me a drink. Naked and you clothed me. The righteous will say, when, Lord? When were you hungry and we fed you? And Jesus will say, when you did this to the least of these, you did it to me. I want to end this sermon on a quote. It's from the same book, uh, The Heart of Worship Files. Uh, this worship leader named Andrew Phillips says this. We are always learning to listen. First to God, because he has spoken to us. And if we are to respond appro appropriately in worship, we must make every effort to hear him accurately. Second, to the world. Because we are called to show mercy. And how are we to do that unless we hear its cries for help? And last, to one another in the church. Because we all still carry our brokenness. And if we are to live in liberty, we need to bear with one another in love. This is the context of our lives. The context in which we are living as we gather to worship. Our listening begins long before we pick up an instrument and extends far deeper than merely trying to keep time and playing in the right key. Our listening to God and to one another forms the shape of our lives. And it is the shape of our lives that determines whether what we do when we gather on Sunday morning is an expression of worship, something that truly brings God glory, or an express, expression of our selfishness or disunity. God hears our hearts far more loudly than he does the sounds we make. God hears our hearts far more loudly than he does the sounds we make.